Hello and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate. I'm here with my co-host, David Moser. Hey, David, how you doing? Really good. I think you, like me, Jeremiah, I sort of, uh, I sort of envision the year in semesters. We go by semesters and we're approaching the end of one, so... Another summer's landmark. coming. Yeah, summer's coming, the, the end of an era, and on to new things, yeah. You know, this we're coming up on a summer of some pretty big anniversaries, some acknowledged, some, well, less so. We're, we're taping this podcast here in Beijing on June 3rd, mm-hmm. which is the, uh, the, the day before the Nothing Ever Happens Day. I thought we'd today we'd kind of take a trip back to that era, well, not maybe specifically uh, June 4th, but to talk about the era leading up to 1989 and just how different it was compared to today. And I'm really fortunate because I, I get to, to, to listen to your stories of what it was like to be here as an academic in the 1980s. And, and I thought maybe you could help us and, and tell us a little bit more about what was, the, what was the zeitgeist like back then? Well, I wanted to focus today on the, the documentary River Elegy that aired uh, in 1988, just prior to the incidents that we're talking about, because I think it's really important to understand, as you say, the 80s and what, what led up to those events and how different the 80s was. So if it's okay, I just want to sort of deep dive into River Elegy. I think most people know about it. It's a very famous or infamous documentary that aired on CCTV, but it's not really a documentary. It's on a YouTube, uh, so people can uh, sample it if they want to. It's more of a, a kind of impassioned video diatribe that uh, sort of laments the fate of traditional Chinese culture, tries to diagnose all the cultural dysfunctions that led to China's decline into poverty and the end of the Qing dynasty and so forth. It's sort of the same lament that the May Fourthers were, were uh, you know, dealing with, agonizing about uh, cultural survival. But it's a CCTV-style video. So they have the stentorian announcer in the, exactly the same format, but it's kind of a schlock CCTV blended with Lu Xun. They have the same kind of uh, criticisms of China's most cherished traditions. There's, they, in fact, highlight three of them. Uh, that made the documentary controversial. One was the, 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 the Great Wall itself, which they criticized, and also the image of the dragon, China being represented by, by you know, the dragon, and then also the Yellow River. So the documentary weaves these three symbols and icons in and out, sort of representing them as kind of uh, morally reprehensible and uh, symbols of kind of a cruel and autocratic and inhumane rule. So that was very controversial. But it was... More than anything else, the documentary was actually a kind of an advertisement for Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms. So the hero, really, of the documentary was Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang and the reforms. For that reason, in fact, Hu, uh, Zhao Ziyang not only sanctioned this documentary and, and approved of it, but actually recommended it to, to uh, his, his friends, colleagues, and also to Lee Kuan Yew, this, the prime minister of Singapore, when he was in Beijing. Right there already is an amazing amount of openness that we don't see, see now. And in fact, Zhao Ziyang at that point in time had worked uh, with the Ministry of Propaganda at the time saying that the, the CCP, the party, should not interfere in, in literature and the arts the idea was that we wanted this was a new era and we were a new openness in economic in the economic sphere but also in the arts we're going to let the arts sort of flourish uh, the script also touches on certain taboo topics at, you may remember that there were other demonstrations besides the big one in 1989 there were student demonstrations in 1986 and 7 and they actually talked about those demonstrations and you know what the students goals were and of course this was the first I had ever heard of. What I, I saw this documentary in my dorm room in 1988. This was the first time I had seen explicit 
if, if, if somewhat muted criticism of Mao, including the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Not a lot, but there were scenes in which, in which those were alluded to and there were de depictions of him, video footage of him. And this, this also was an astounding sort of breakthrough. Anyone who watched this knew that this was a, a, a sort of a breakthrough. Uh, in terms of how it was uh, received by the, 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 the Chinese people, it was aired twice in 1988. Uh, they estimate as many as 200 million people saw it. The People's Daily published transcripts of it and had, and had reviews of it. Uh, at Beida, where I was at the time, the students were having, they, at the time they called them shalong, these sal the democracy salons, 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 or, you know, talk, uh, sort of talk format events, where they, where they discussed the ideas in, 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 in River Elegy. They talked about, you know, where to go from now, in very much May 4th kinds of d discussions. Uh, the book became uh, the book version became bestseller, and um, the main thing that the these intellectuals, you know, they had finally found their voice. They finally had give, let the intellectuals uh, produce a documentary and present their side of of Chinese history. And the shocking thing also about it was their side of Chinese history wasn't had nothing to do with Marxism. They completely uh, wrote an independent sort of historical account of Chinese history that didn't mention Marx, and that was also. Uh, a, a pretty amazing thing. So all in all, you can see that this was an astounding kind of a breakthrough, and it's. But in the context of that of the of that nineteen eighties period, it actually was historically made sense. This this was the 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 uh, the trajectory that society was was headed toward. So it's a it's a six part documentary, and we're going to put a link to the uh, YouTube version in our show notes. But but David, for for those people who haven't seen the documentary or or want to get a sense of, of what it was about. Can, can you tell, give us a synopsis of, of the main theses of River Elegy and, and what are some of the events that they used or what are some of the images that they used? So yeah, six parts. There were lots, lots of images and lots of poetic metaphors and some interviews with notable scholars. Part one sort of tries to characterize the, the psychosis or the psych psychopathology of the nation. Um, it talks about you know China's history of as the Chinese culture as a history of water control and flood disasters and and you know points to those as being part of the reason for China's uh, tradition of authoritarian style rule and th for this particular uh, section it focused on the dragon as one of these uh, sort of immoral symbols of, of cruel authoritarian and inhumane rule that's basically part one part two is all about China's isolationism, which is part of the critique of the whole documentary, which is that China is isolated and needs to open up to the outside world. And the symbol for this one is the Great Wall. And uh, I have this quote here from the documentary. I mean, imagine this appearing on CCTV now. In fact, this, imagine this documentary on CCTV now it would be impossible. But here was one of the, the statements about the Great Wall. Yet if somehow the Great Wall could speak, it would tell the descendants of Chinese people that, is a huge, that it is a huge monument to a tragedy created by historic destiny, that it cannot stand for strength, progress, or glory, but only isolation, conservatism, and an ineffective defenses. Because of its massiveness and its longevity, it has rooted self-glorification, arrogance, and self-deception into our national character. Oh, Great Wall, why should we sing your praises? Now, can you imagine <laughs> this gives of this self, self cultural self-loathing that you were that we were just talking about? Well, two things immediately strike me. One of them is, of course, that this idea of an isolated China is partially a Western construct. 
you know, most of the most academics who study Chinese history would say not. It's just not true that there. In fact, China was quite connected to the, to global global trade, the global movement of ideas throughout its history. But the other part of it that and you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't imagine this being on Chinese TV. And I, you know, if it was to be, say, this was a BBC documentary that was broadcast in the West. I think we'd have netizens like freaking out, like how can sure. you possibly slander us so much? Sure. And you know, it, it does the, the critique of the film, the critique of the series, even more or less at the time, but certainly after 1989, it, it does kind of speak to this idea that it, it represents, you know, a kind of a self-loathing or cultural self-loathing that was part of the discourse in the 1980s. And you know, we think of uh, things like. River Elegy, but also things like, I guess, right, I guess he's a Taiwanese writer, technically, but Boyang, and his his essay, you know, The Ugly Chinese, um, which, you know, these, these all kind of harken back, as you said, to kind of a May 4th era, or at least early 20th century, you know, similar writings like out of Lu Shun and the, the, the you know, the true story of Ah and and part of me kind of thinks, like, oh, okay, so it wouldn't be shown on CCTV today, right? Is that necessarily just because of censorship, or is it just because there is a great deal more cultural self-confidence in China today, and that in and of itself, propaganda, government, politics aside, isn't necessarily a bad thing? It's it's almost apples and oranges. You, the, the times were so different back then that you really cannot compare them. And, and, and you know, Lu Xun himself also had the same critique of the Great Wall, right? So, so this has been part of the Chinese, uh, you know, history. This that you call it, I mean, you can call it self-loathing, but it was a sort of necessary self sort of assessment of, of why have we fallen so far. We can we can go on more about it, but the comparisons to Boyang are very good. And also, you're very right in terms that that back then the uh, the documentary was criticized by historians and scholars for just the reasons you mentioned. They said it's just historically inaccurate. It's exaggerated. And uh, it's 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 just uh, it's slanted against China, you know, as a culture. You bring up a good point when you think about self-loathing versus self-assessment. But one of the things, and maybe we can talk about this after we kind of uh, finish our synopsis. But I wonder when we talk about self-assessment, what are the standards of assessment being applied? That is to say, is a writer like Lu Xun or Boyang, or even to some extent the the documentarians who did River Elegy, are they still are they still implicitly having a standard of the West or the Western historical trajectory as the standard of success and that China fails to meet that standard? And this idea that modernity, the search for a Chinese modernity, has been in many ways a search for a Western modernity within China. And that today, rather than say that even, you know, in the 1980s or even to some extent into the first decade of this century, you know, today it's more about a search for a particular Chinese form of modernity rather than simply, okay, this is what the West does. We got to check the boxes. And I wonder when we talk about this idea of self-appraisal or self-awareness versus self-criticism and self-loathing, if, if maybe that's part of the shift here as well. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Uh, but of course, we're in a diff- very different world. I don't blame these uh, River Elegy documentarians any more than the May 4th movement for, for taking this tack, because the objective conditions at that time were, were unequal. They, they indeed looked to the West as adva- more advanced, 
as heading in the direction that they wanted to go. And they had to, to honestly address that from their point of view. And uh, nowadays, we've seen the trajectory, we've seen what happens, and now it's a very different reality. And we now know, in fact, that modernization doesn't equal westernization. They didn't know that back then. And, and so they were sort of struggling with these ideas. And But they, like the May 4th movement, I think they were these were intellectuals, and they but they were also patriots in a sense, who, who were actually honestly trying to give their opinion about the direction China should go to save China. I mean, they weren't in, in favor of, of, of just completely uh, erasing Chinese culture. They were, they, were in, they were very much interested in what was worth saving and what should be discarded, you know, such as Confucianism was in the May 4th movement. But again, I have to emphasize this documentary was not being made by TV people or by, uh, you know, sociologists necessarily or here or even, you know, scholarly historians. It was made by intellectuals who were, were sort of on the vanguard, sort of the younger intellectuals who were uh, writing the Baogao Wenxue, you know, the report, the um, what do you call it, the um, uh, reported reportage fiction or whatever they call it. Uh, the people who were actually concerned with China's fate, you know, the people who who entered the square in 1989, right? So, so part three it talks ex explicitly about the fate of intellectuals, and these people were intellectuals writing. Su uh, Su Xiaokang was one of these. He's the the main force behind it, and they basic part three makes the case that Chinese uh, history. Um, that China, although it had a great history of inventions and technological development, never developed modern science and never developed you know, a modern sort of democratic system. And they blame this on the Chinese primacy of politics and the squelching of free, in free inquiry. And so the point made is in the part three is that China should have let the intellectuals uh, have a greater voice. And there's a great quote from the documentary that is, that is uh, so amazingly self-serving that I can't help but uh, utter it here. It says, if only the intellectuals could sprinkle the sweet spring water of science and democracy onto the yellow soil of China. So <laughs> this is kind of, they kind of reveal their hand here. They, the point really is, we're the ones who ought to be leading China going forward and not these retrograde rulers, uh, you know. Now that the fact that, that Zhao Ziyang and everyone, you know, sanctioned this documentary says a lot for, for the way they were thinking, you know, as well. I mean, this was also the era when Hu Yaobang was recommending people start switching over to forks instead of chopsticks. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, Zhao Ziyang I, was, if not, I'm not mistaken, the first leader to wear a Western suit. Isn't that true? Yeah. So these were leaders, these, were, these reformers were kind of the same mindset. They were thinking that we, that we needed to move in a new direction, too. They were, they were very liberal by today's standards. Spoiler alert for those people who have not taken a survey course of modern Chinese history. History will not work out well for either Hu Yaobang <laughs> or Zhao Ziyang in the 1980s. So let's keep that in the back of our minds as we're talking about all the praise they've heaped That's upon right. River Elegy when it was broadcast. There, yeah, good point, right. This is a retrospective look for sure. So part four is where the real advertisement comes in. Part four is an ad for reform and opening up. And it's a critiquing China's lack of ability to create wealth. It, ex it extols capitalism and sort of it mentions capitalism explicitly saying, why has China been so reticent to adopt capitalism? Look how successful it is overseas and so, and so forth. Zhao Ziyang plays a prominent role in this se section. His, his, there's you know, images of him all uh, you know, traveling across China and you know, enacting the economic reforms. And, and this one also, uh, this particular 
uh, segment, had the first open criticism of Chairman Mao I had ever seen and would not see in the, in the 90s as far as I know. Um, I have some quotes from that. It's mostly by montage. The, the, the announcer doesn't really mention it explicitly, but, but the, over, the, uh, the overdub announcer, the things that he's saying, the lines he's saying sort of interact with the visuals of Chairman Mao so that you get the sense of what the document is trying to say. There's a subtext. So the text is, uh, from economic utopia to political crises and finally to social chaos. And at the moment, the announcer says social chaos. We have footage of Mao during the Cultural Revolution and enthusiastic uh, you know, youth shouting Mao Zhu Si Wan Sui, right? Wasn't this a great historical tragedy, the inevitable conclusion to this agricultural civilization? During the the mad years of the Great Leap Forward, myths about the people's great courage and the land, the land's huge bounty greatly exaggerated the wheat yields of northern China and the rice yields of the south. Everyone from the great leader above, and then a long shot of Chairman Mao's statue being carried by the adoring throngs, uh, to the scientists and the usually practical, practical pre- peasants below, all believe these myths. So you have these images of Chairman Mao as a sort of this you know, a sort of a new emperor and, and these myths of China's uh, limitless power and grandeur and all this stuff, to, sort of told through images, but not just by the uh, by the text itself. Do you think so much of the power of this, of River Elegy at the time, though, was because it was a documentary? I mean, we we know how much power images and video have to capture the emotional, the emotions of the viewer. You know, if this had been just a, a book, it might have been one of you know hundreds of thousands, even you know, thousands of books written at the time that were some variation of a critique of China's past and an extolling of the reform and opening era. But you're right. I mean, when you watch River Elegy, the juxtaposition of these words with these images, it gives it that you know not very subtle. I mean, especially for the time, critique that you know I, I think that that was one reason why later on. A lot of officials look back at this and go, "Wow, we, we how did that one slip by?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What it what it says though is that the zeitgeist was was very much you know in tune with what these intellectuals were saying. I think virtually everyone at that point there was some uh, unity of opinion that China had gone a wrong direction and we needed to go in a new direction, and that the part of the problem was the past thirty years. I mean, although uh, you know, there's. Deng Xiaoping or whoever famous apocryphal evaluation of Mao as 70% correct, 30% incorrect, and which probably needs to be inverted. But I mean, the, the, the general opinion, uh, you know, was that the Mao direction was the wrong one and, and that, 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 in fact, the problem of China throughout the, the century of humiliation was a deep one that had to do with problems, not only Western bullying, but, but Chinese culture, some deep aspects of Chinese culture. So that was the default kind of opinion among the leadership, much of the leadership and much of the populace, and certainly among the intellectuals. And so for that reason, although these images were shocking and unprecedented, they were not unexpected and they were not out of tune with what people were thinking. They resonated with people. And that's the point that nowadays those images probably may or may not resonate with people strongly, but th- th- those are the old hat issues now. We've gone beyond that. We're, that these are no longer the problems that we're, that we're addressing now. But back then, these were precisely the questions they were asking. So that's why it's a kind of a river elegy is kind of a, a fossil without any lineage. There was nothing before it like it. And then after, given the events of 1989, it, it was never repeated. So it's hard to evaluate it because it's, 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 it's so generous. It's its own type. 
there's there's nothing else that you can quite compare it to except maybe Boyang or something like that. I'll go on to the uh, part five, which is a little simpler to talk about. China is a country has a history of just disasters, you know, of natural disasters and human disasters, mistakes. And so it's the uh, part five is about this analogy between natural and man-made disasters. And, and the villain here is the Yellow River, the source of flooding, uh, and also to China's tendency to sort of compound nat- nat- natural disasters with, with man-made leadership ones. And I've, if I'm not mistaken, there's some pretty clear allusions to the mandate of heaven here. We're talking about disasters and floods and earthquakes. You know, one of the things I, I often say about the mandate of heaven in class is that it, in some ways it's not the worst way to, it's not the worst indicator of government efficiency. What I, what I mean is, you know, there's always, you know, shit's going to happen. There's always going to be natural disasters. There's going to be, you know, floods, droughts, epidemics, crop failures, what have you, earthquakes. But, you know, if the government, if the state is functioning at a, a high level, Disasters don't have to become catastrophes. If the flood, if the levees are secure, if the canal system is working, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't have to flood. The flood can be controlled uh, or managed at least. If there's an earthquake and a city is destroyed and the government is at efficient at a peak efficiency, it can rebuild. You know, a crop failure doesn't have to lead to famine if the granaries are full. We can go on and on, and not just in China, but think of, I mean. Look at what's happened in 2006 with Katrina in the United States, and of course, most recently with with COVID. So, you know, one of the things when, when I was watching this, I was thinking, you know, that's that's I understand the you know the idea that this is the China's sorrow. These floods kind of indicate that somehow we're being, I don't know, divinely punished for for our for our intransigence. But then part of me thought too, you know, well, wait a second. I mean, you know that when these things happen, it could also be an indicator that. The, the systems at the time had failed. And, you know, certainly the, there is no, that you, don't have to get, you don't have to get into cosmology to see how that could lead people to question the legitimacy of the state that is responsible for their well-being. Yeah, exactly. So nevertheless, these, as you can see, these are the, the kinds of deep cultural ideas they were playing with here. Keep in mind, as I, we, we keep calling it a documentary, but it wasn't really a documentary in the sense that it was, you know, an, an, an informative kind of uh, journal, journal. It wasn't an example of journalism uh, or even uh, accurate storytelling. It was kind of a reverie. It was kind of an essay, a, vi- a visual audio essay critiquing uh, Chinese culture at many levels, using many deep metaphors is what it really was all about. It was kind of a manifesto in some ways. Yeah, in some ways. It was certainly a manifesto for the new agenda to liberalize and, and, and change and open up to the world, which brings us to uh, the final part, part six, in which this uh, the, the, the deepest sort of uh, metaphor they use are colors. The China associated with yellow and the West associated with blue so the, the documentary posits these two types of world cultures, a yellow culture like China's, which is continental and sort of inward-looking, agricultural, defensive in nature, conservative in nature, and blue civilizations, which supposedly liberate the forces of production and create economic activity and industry and give rise to science and democracy. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> Some people have noted, although it's not explicit, that there's a kind of a pun here because they they talk about the river uh, yellow the yellow river as being you know the epitome of this yellow culture, but then the blue ocean 
you know, the, the, the documentary says the, the Yellow River must eventually flow into the blue ocean and take, take its place with this, this new sort of uh, kind of culture. And, but, of course, the word they use is the yang for ocean, which is also a synonym, as you know, for foreignness, like yang is, you know, tu is local and, and, and yang is foreign. So there's a, there's a definite play on words here with the, what we need to emulate and what we need to move forward, for, we need to move toward our trajectory should be uh, not just development and, and uh, industry and economic development and so forth, but this direction uh, is symbolized by a for, foreignness, yang, and oceans as opposed to rivers. Conti- you know, continental countries, civilizations live on rivers. The, the foreign countries, uh, the 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 qiang, you know, they deal in oceans. And so there was a, a definite overt sort of metaphor going on here, which uh, was also kind of shocking in a way because the, the usual party narrative is that these foreigners were the bullies, the, the villains, the ones who had caused China's, had facilitated China's decline with the opium wars and, and so on. And here was a documentary saying, no, that these we should actually admire these c- cultures and learn from them instead of blaming them for our problems. So the, the part six is the most controversial one. And it uses the strained color symbolism, which is very uh, evocative, but convincing. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's just an interesting f- sort of framing of the, of, the, of, the, of the cultural issues they were talking about. There was a zeitgeist at the time that assumed or, or, or began to think of the outside world, in particular the West, as a model rather than the cause of China's sorrow. And you know, in the 1980s, part of this was, of course, you know, the, 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 the huge gap in terms of the economic development between China and the West in the 1980s. So there was a lot of envy, a lot of asking, like, how did they, you know, how did the West do it? And I think that also created a culture that later generations in China would call kind of worshiping the foreign or worshiping the West. You know, it's not an accident that one of the first things that happens after 1989 is the patriotic education curriculum, which quite pointedly says all those Western countries that you that people were wishing to emulate. Well, you know, these are the descendants of the opium traders and the Bagua Lianjun. And so, I mean, ever since the early 1990s, it's been a very concerted effort on the part of the party and its education and the education ministry to remind people of that. Let me take. Let me just take a step back here, though, and let me let me for, take a moment and take a um, a giant knitting needle, and jam it into the cerebral cortex into my brain, and and, and then so I, my brain is the same as your usual tanky on Twitter, and if I give another whack, I might actually hit like full Martin Jake's level of like disconnected reality. But a critique of this would be: isn't this just a Trojan horse for bourgeois liberalization? And, you know, these are a bunch of people who are just so much in love with the West that they were willing to sell out their own country and they just didn't get it. Like, in fact, what they were doing was they were conflating modernity with Westernization. That was the biggest problem. So long as China was beholden to this, you know, love of things foreign, they were never going to be able to create the conditions for their own success. That may be a very crude way of, of reading the 1980s, but that is probably how a lot of people inside China today see it. No, absolutely. The, this is the reason that I'm presenting this is I, I think that it's interesting to look back and uh, think counterfactually, you know, that, that what if China had in fact moved in this direction? What if 1989 had never happened or they were somehow able to sidestep that? 
where would China be now? And I th- I think that, you know, there's a kind of a, the kind of um, revisionist perhaps uh, history now is uh, now that China has become stronger is that that this was the correct path and this was the only path China should, should take and the party was was right all along and it's validated by high speed rail and, and and a great economic success right, which is a, is. I call it revisionism because we don't know what would have happened had China continued the way it was going, but with the uh, cultural and uh, informational reforms and openness paralleling the economic openness, what might have happened? You know, they, they of course, the Chinese government was very worried about this, and so that's why they clamped down, and that's why the the press freedoms and the media censorship and everything got worse and worse, whereas the economic uh, agenda you know trajectory proceeded apace what would have happened if both had continued in parallel or at least mapping each other rising and improving over the years we don't know and we'll never know but this was a moment at in time in which it was possible because this was a time that they were allowing the people to speak freely about the current problems to criticize the party to criticize the government and to actually criticize chinese culture itself to look deeply into their own uh, culture and see what kinds of things might have led to the, the plight that they were in, because they were in, in a difficult situation, obviously, right? So I think, I think what's interesting about this for me is that even if you look at what has happened to China now and give the party kudos for what it's done to, to create a China, such an advanced China that that's, has realized this sort of Chinese dream of getting out of that, uh, uh, of that sick man of Asia, stereotype and now taking its place geopolitically as a powerful player just as it was in times past during the Tang dynasty and do we take from that the lesson that the decisions made at the time were all correct in retrospect and that there was that the, these these rowdy intellectuals who were making all these uh, sort of pronouncements about where China would go and what China could be that they were proven wrong by the results of, of the 21st century China. Or do we go back to that time and say, no, maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe they had a point. Maybe they had a point that, in fact, the leadership agreed with, but that, that because of the events of, of the, the last year of the 1980s, that, that China took a very different direction that would produce what we have now, but faces the same, some of the same exact problems that the 1980s intellectuals were complaining about. In other words... Some of it, some of it, the party has succeeded in in, in uh, solving, which is the economic conundrum. How do we create a, a? You know, they've done that, but have they solved this other problem that they were talking about, which is the sort of intellectual and spiritual weakness of China? Has China produced, for example, the kinds of soft power that the '80s intellectuals were looking at in the West and and worshiping, and or not worshiping, but certainly admiring and wanting to? I mean, this was a, this was the 1980s. Was an era where there were three or four translations of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, Hundred Years of Solitude," and was a huge, enormous hit. People loved foreign literature. They they loved foreign movies. They loved foreign culture and philosophy. Were interested in all these things, and they wanted to be a part of it. Has China done only succeeded now because of those events in in 19 in the 1980s? Sort of fulfilled only half that equation, and what could the what could have happened if if the trajectory had been different? Because we could see where it was going, and we could see where it went after 1989. For so for me, the river the reason river elegy is interesting to look at is because I say it's a fossil of that period. The contents of that of that documentary could not have been 
done later on or, or now, because it reflected the way people were thinking then about China and its problems. And a lot of what they were thinking was, in retrospect, was, was probably right. And to the extent that it resonates with Lu Xun, that it resonates with a lot of the May 4th thinking, and that it resonates right, right now with what the party propaganda is, because they should, they're still going back and making uh, documentaries and things about the May 4th movement and, and uh, presenting this thing that, you know, that, 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 that part of the problem, in fact, was that we were backward and we had to figure out a way to, to uh, achieve economic wealth, given the fact that, we had, that China had fallen so far. So that's the question. That's why, to me, River Elegy is... A fascinating specimen to 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 provoke these questions. All right, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Okay. What if the you know leaving the party out of it for a moment? What if the last 30 years has basically suggested that the the people who who created River Elegy, the people who were discussing these issues at the time, and those issues, them the actual the issues they were discussing were by and large irrelevant, and that what the majority of people in China wanted and the reason why they were so impressed with the West as a concept had very little to do with the ideals of the West or the ideology of the West, but the fact that the West was economically more advanced and that the interest in those ideals and ideology was seen in a very utilitarian way that say, well, maybe we should try these things out because that's how the West got rich. Oh, wait, we don't need these. And that once China began to really accelerate its growth in the 1990s, and again, this is where the party jumps back in because this was a conscious decision. You know, it turned out that kind of like in the U.S. where all the hippies got Amex cards in the 1980s and suddenly forgot about Woodstock, that the, the, the college students of the 1980s and frankly, the majority of people in the 1980s who didn't go to college, once they get to the 1990s, are like, well, you know, I'm doing really well now. You know, I, I mean, if we're looking at the West for an ideological model, I guess we'll go with Ronald Reagan because my life is better off now than it was four years ago. And as a result, those issues that were discussed that tend to really attract and fascinate people like me, that in fact, really, in some ways, it was kind of ephemeral. That it, it, it did, or, you know, it was something that was there, but it wasn't really, it was obscuring what was really happening. And I, I wonder if when we get to the 21st century and the fact that so many, uh, you know, we look back and, and look at the 1980s and we think, wow, no one ever talks about that stuff anymore. Where did it all go? There's a part of me. And again, I, I am to some extent kind of playing a, a, another counterfactual. So, I, I, you know, this is, a, this is an extreme view um, that I'm expressing for the purpose of argument. But what if that stuff really never was there? And that what we're kind of looking back at is projecting or wish fulfillment or kind of a, you know, wish like, wow, we, you know, there was a time when China had these ideas and then somehow it got, you know, taken away. But I, I, I look around China in, the, in, you know, 2021 and, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of things that kind of make it difficult to express ideas like that. As you said, they're going to show, you know, Hung Li Yuan softcore porn before they show River Elegy on CCTV again. But at the same time, maybe there wouldn't necessarily be the same audience or the same resonance now, even if it was shown. We never will know. That's the that's the point. Um, it could be it could be that um, you know had it continued in that direction, China would have devolved in, in sort of the kind of partisan uh, bickering and chaos that we currently are experiencing in the United States. 
you know, there, there is, a, there is a, a limit to that. You can go too far and freedom of speech and, and, and you know, multi-party democracies can get pretty messy. And it could be that China would have suffered for that in some way. You don't, we, we, just, we just don't know. But we do know that, you know, after 1989, those dreams and those ideas and those critiques didn't really go away. What really happened is that a whole generation kind of gave up on politics and hunkered down and said, all right, uh, that's off the table now. Let's just make money. And to me, the 90s, the, you know, what followed and the trajectory was, was double-digit uh, GDP growth, astounding, you know, economic development, and, but a kind of a uh, aversion to politics and a kind of cynicism and a sort of a lack of spiritual interest. Um, but maybe that was a necessary thing that, had, that China had to go through. Um, certainly the, in the economic sphere, they, made, they didn't want to do what the Soviet Union did because you saw what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union, what happened to the economy after that. So they took some lessons, some counter lessons from what was happening uh, in, in other countries that had done the same thing. We, who knows? We, we don't know what would have happened. But I still think from talking to, because I still know people from that era, and they're still around, and they still write articles, and they still talk. Xu Xiaokang is still around, right? And I think the people who care about those issues and you know, most society, societies, people mostly care about the material benefits. They don't even care about these these broad historical and cultural issues. But for those who still care about them, I think those critiques and those ideas, they may have have, have been refined or or, or uh, changed because of what's subsequent historic events, but they haven't gone away. And that people still think about them and still talk about them. And in some sense, the critiques are still there in the modern sorts of. Of, of contradictions that we have in modern society, which is this an incredible advanced technology and economic development, but a relatively impoverished sort of spiritual realm that's still struggling to find you know meaningful expressions in, for example, soft power, as I talk, talked about, and a sort of a, a tragic brain drain where lots of very talented people figure out that this is not a place to, to develop their skills and they go overseas. So that there's a there's a fundamental sort of tension there between the attractiveness of sheer money and power and the ability to create another kind of a spiritual civilization, which China has a lot of potential for that, and they have a lot of of, of raw material material there, and some people are drawing on that to create meaning because there is China does is such a rich culture, and we need that culture. But I think the consensus, and I know you're playing devil's advocate, because the consensus is part of that is being tragically sort of squelched and held down in the interest of the stability which they, where, where which the party at that time felt was paramount. So that's that's my uh, take on it. To to move away from the devil for a moment, <laughs> which isn't nearly as much fun, but the other side, and I think you, that's what you're saying. I, I agree with what you're saying, which is that. If these ideas don't have any resonance, if they're not still powerful, even in the 21st century, then why spend so much money, so much effort, and so much literal bandwidth, if not yeah. mental bandwidth, in smacking down these ideas and right. keeping them from taking root? Right. And so clearly, somebody feels like these ideas are still either powerful slash dangerous, depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on. And, and I think that that does have an effect on this notion of, of soft power and global discourse, which, which is, 
you know, if you, if when we want our ideas to be, to, to be heard and to resonate with other people, one of the ways, one of the best ways for that to, one of the best ways to develop ideas that can do that is to test those ideas, you know, to, to talk and to converse and to have those ideas challenged. And when our ideas are challenged, we refine them, we hone them. But one of the, 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 the challenges right now for, for China in trying to drive a global discourse to tell the China story, to, to express their cultural values in a way that has that attractiveness, not the Yellow River being absorbed into the Blue Sea, but actually in some ways, you know, becoming part of a broader rainbow of watercolors. Wow. <laughs> Jeremiah, you're you're becoming sort of intoxicated by these metaphors. I think. I gotta, you know, we got to stop with the CBD orders in Taobao. Anyway, <laughs> the but the the larger point being that as these as the space for discussing the ideas has gotten smaller, what ends up happening is that the ideas that are are that can be expressed inside China are the ones that go unchallenged, and then when those ideas then enter the global arena, they're getting their ass kicked. And that's very frustrating for people inside China who care about this. But the the but the the solution is not a particularly palatable one. And you know, I, I do think there's that one of the reasons why the China story, in fact, was more easily told in the eighties and nineties, even if it was a version of the story that wasn't always the one the party wanted, but one that had a greater cultural attractiveness, is that many much of that story was being more rigorously tested and trained within China. Yeah, well, it's a huge topic. I don't think we're going to solve this in one podcast, but but I, I mean, I hope that the takeaway here is is just that I think River Elegy is a kind of instructive icon, an instructive sort of point in time. And um, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, that, that documentary that was shown twice and was hugely popular in the 80s could not be shown now is an interesting and instructive, and the fact that most writers at the from the time, you know, journalists and scholars will tell you that 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 those eighties, the the the, year, the decade of the eighties was freer in terms of what they could write uh, and talk about in public than it is now. I think th- those facts kind of you know give rise to some questions that we need to talk about. No matter how much better Chinese China is. Now, in so many ways, and how many so much more potential it has for for all kinds of development, we still need to ask those questions and look back to that period and say, how could it have reached this this point uh, where you had you know something like this that that was such a sign that that's had such a promise and had such an obvious trajectory? Um, what are the consequences of that tra- trajectory? You know, sort of being dramatically halted. I think that's enough for a podcast to sort of raise this issue, have people go back and look at it, think about where we where they were and where we are now, and just, yeah, raise the discussion. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this trip down memory lane, and we we'll hope you'll join us again on another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. Bye.